Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. for one another and pray together and so you're fulfilling the word of God in doing so so really proud of us for doing that tonight let's go to John 18 John 18 and we've been in uh, conversations with Jesus in the book of John and that's uh, getting ready to come to a close but uh, not before a couple of really great uh, um, passages and stories of conversations that Jesus had on a personal level uh, this one I wouldn't rank as one of my favorites, but it's important. And uh, everything in Scripture is there for a reason under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Do you agree with that? And so it's important that we pay attention to it. Do you know that not everything that happened, and John makes this clear, not everything that happened or everything that Jesus did is recorded in the Scripture. So there are some things that were left out under the providence of the Holy Spirit, not that God's trying to hide them from us, but there are certain things that need to be emphasized and other things that perhaps didn't need to be emphasized in order for us to have the, the picture of Christ that we need. And so uh, here we are to, tonight with one of those moments. This story takes us from the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to his trial before Pilate, and uh, it goes through a conversation with Annas. And this story gives us uh, more insight into the extent to which people will go to suppress the truth, uh, to keep their own kingdoms. And many people who have positions of power, they really don't want to yield their authority to Jesus. And I think that's what this passage is about. We now live in a culture where, uh, where everyone is their own king. Uh, we're autonomous. Anybody know what that means? Autonomous means uh, self-governed, self-law, to have a law to oneself. And uh, this was the problem in the book of Judges, wasn't it? That in that day, Israel had no king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. So to each one, they had their own law rather than looking to the law of the Lord. And so because that tends to be the default setting of fallen humanity, uh, it is a challenge to us when someone, well, when Jesus, when God comes and declares himself Lord and demands our allegiance, though uh, he won't take it from us with, uh, without our willing it. Um, but it calls for us to make a decision to follow him and to recognize his authority. And so uh, this, uh, this problem is seen by the way that we have to cast off authority uh, of God in order to do our own thing. Uh, we've questioned his rules. We've questioned his morality. We have uh, questioned his design, and we've, que we've questioned his providence. I mean, if you think about it, um, I, I'm sorry to keep hitting on this. I've been, I've been dwelling in this book for a little over a year now called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And uh, one of the things that's addressed there is the whole idea that we can re redefine ourselves by our own internal thoughts. And one of the outworkings of that, of course, is that we can choose our own gender, not based on our biology, but based upon uh, our psychology, how we feel. And so, to me, that suggests, that goes in direct conflict with the providence of God. If in providence God chose our gender, let's just use that for an example, then if we say, I reject that and I'm going to choose my own thing, we're throwing off the providence of God. And we're saying we're going to do our own thing. That's just one example. People do that in numerous ways all the time that maybe are not so drastic uh, in our estimation. And yet, people do that. And so when the king comes, there are those subversives that want to push him out, that want to keep him from his throne. And this conversation is one of those. This is a conversation between two men which should have uh, the greatest interest in the people's response to God the Son of God and the High Priest. Well, the High Priest in a way. So let's call him the Acknowledged High Priest, and uh, we'll call the other Jesus 
the great high priest. Let's look at John 12, excuse me if I said 12, uh, chapter 18, verse 12. All right, let me find my spot here. It says, then the detachment of soldiers with the commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and they brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Then it tells us about Peter's denial. We're not skipping over that because it's unimportant, but because we're focusing upon the conversations here with Jesus. Verse 19, Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus says, I've spoken openly to the world. Uh, If... Uh, I've always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all of the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? And Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So here we've got kind of an interesting situation. We've got Caiaphas, who's called the high priest. and We've also got Annas, who's called the high priest. How do we reconcile that tricky? Can there be two high priests? How do we resolve all of that? So we want to we talk a little bit about this. I'm going to first mention the responsibilities of the high priest, and then we'll, we'll come to that in just a moment. But the high priest, or sometimes he's known as the chief priest, he has to be descendant not only of Levi, but who? Aaron. So he follows the priestly lineage, and uh, he has to be a descendant of Aaron. If you're a descendant of Levi, you can be a Levite, obviously. You can serve in the temple, but you can't be a priest unless you're a descendant of Aaron. So we follow that particular lineage. Uh, He was the chief figure in Israel's religious life. Uh, He represented the people to God. One one popular way to describe this is the prophet represents God to the people by prophesying that he speaks as an oracle of God. He, He communicates the words of God. And a priest represents the people to God. So they bring the people before God. So this is one of the jobs of the the high priest is to represent the people to God by offering sacrifices and atonement on their behalf. He alone was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. On what day? Yom Kippur, or what's the English version of that? The day, the day of atonement, the day when atonement is made for all of Israel, where God accepted the sacrifices and at least in the Old Testament times, pushed off for another year those sins until finally the Messiah would come in and complete the work and take them away. So he's responsible for that. He's the one that can go in once a year. He also oversaw all of the sacrificial activities which took place inside the temple, whether directly or in a supervisory role. And so he was responsible. If something's going wrong within the sacrificial system, that's the responsibility of the high priest. He should make sure that it's set right. And so you can see how important the high priest would be to Israel's religious life. He alone wore special vestments. He alone interpreted the oracles, the uh, the mysterious uh, Urim and Thummim. Uh, once uh, he was anointed, it was for life. So if you're the high priest, then you're high priest for life. That brings us a little bit into the difficulty that we're dealing with now between Annas and Caiaphas, both being high priests. Uh, so once he was anointed, it was for life. In New Testament times, he became the chairman of the Jewish Supreme Court. Uh, anybody know what that's called? The Sanhedrin, right? Sanhedrin, the, the 70, the 71 elders that ruled over Israel. And uh, he was the president or the chairman of that. And uh, with such responsibilities for Israel's welfare, uh, it's really kind of a shocking irony, not kind of, it's a shocking irony 
that the high priest should miss the coming of God in flesh. Don't you think that no one sits higher religiously in Israel's um, religious life than the high priest? And nobody has more special revelation of what God is like than the people of Israel. Right? Jesus even said it to the woman in Samaria, salvation's from the Jews, you know, and that, that we've received this special revelation of what God is like. And so it's ironic in a way, but I was thinking about this on the way to church, that in a kind of an interesting way, it's also appropriate that the high priest should be the one to push Jesus to be the sacrifice. Do you understand what I mean by that? That, that he's the one who's always offering sacrifice. I'm not saying that justifies what he did. Uh, even though it was prophesied, even though it was in the will of God that Jesus should die, it doesn't release them from responsibility. Each one, both Jewish and Gentile, from offering Jesus as the sacrifice. Both are guilty in Scripture, both Jew and Gentile together for crucifying Jesus. But in a way, it's a strange irony, and in another way, it seems strangely appropriate that it should be just as it was. So he oversaw all this, and uh, the interesting thing to me is that uh, the priesthood, by the time of Jesus, had been compromised by political interference. So if you know a little bit about the history here, when the Romans came in, and, and perhaps the Greeks before them, there was a time of Jewish independence between uh, the Greeks and the Romans, but when the Romans came in, they saw how important the high priest's influence was over the people. And so they put themselves in a place to appoint a high priest. And any time that high priest was uh, not advantageous to them, they would switch and they would put somebody else in their place. Okay, So uh, we know in AD 6 that Annas was appointed to be high priest. And somewhere around 15, he was deposed as high priest. He had five sons who were high priests as well, uh, even while he's alive. And then a son-in-law who became high priest in AD 18. And his name was, anybody know? Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the son-in-law of Annas. And so um, that, that was a certain problem for some people within Israel, that the Romans should have that place of authority over the priesthood. That's a place that should come from God. That's a place that no king should even have authority over. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that caused, we're not, we don't hear about this in the Bible, but we know it from uh, history. It's one of the things that caused the Essenes, who were a certain kind of religious separatists, to go out into the wilderness and say, we're not, gonna, we're not going to worship at the temple under a corrupt priesthood. The Essenes are the ones that give us the Dead Sea Scrolls. They, they separated themselves like monks and said, we're going to live out here because the whole thing has gone up in smoke. We're going to wait for the Messiah to come. And so you have, uh, you have certain individuals uh, among them that feel that that's corrupted and it can't be redeemed. Other people stayed and felt that they could fix it from within. The zealots thought they could fix things politically. The uh, Pharisees compromised a little bit, felt like the major thing that God really wanted from them was a righteous life. And then the Sadducees many times were, we would think of them as political liberals in some way, that not political liberals, religious liberals, that they didn't really believe in afterlife and miracles and angels and things like that. Uh, but they did firmly believe in the first five books of the Bible. And that these were our priests. And so... In a way, they wanted to guard it, but in a way, they were kind of sellouts to the political system. They sold out, and Annas, I think, was a big part of that. So this is one of those things uh, that was taking place during that day. Luke chapter 3, verse 2 says, During the high priesthood, and it, it uses a singular there, the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Through Caiaphas, though Caiaphas was the high priest officially appointed by Rome, in fact, his father-in-law shared the high priestly power by his personal influence according to strict Jewish thought. So I think probably what happened was Rome appointed Caiaphas to be the new high priest, but the more dedicated and faithful Jewish population thought Anna should still be the high priest. 
Okay, so we're just kind of setting up the scenario. Annas is called high priest in verse 15 and 16, verse 19, verse 22. Even though Caiaphas is holding the office officially, we see that in verse 12 and verse 24. In terms of real political power, Caiaphas has that power. It has to go through him. But in terms of influence, it's Annas. He's kind of a thuggish uh, mafia don over the religious system of Israel. I'd like to think of it that way. That's exactly what he does. There's a lot of power that's given to him, and in fact, he misused that. He'd been made high priest by a certain Quinerius. Anybody ever hear of Quinerius? About the Christmas story. This all happened when Quinerius was governor of Syria, remember in Luke chapter 2. So he's the one that appointed Annas to be high priest. Uh, many Jewish people probably resented that appointment, um, especially since under that Mosaic law, uh, you shouldn't take that away. The high priest should remain high priest until they died. Anybody remember one of the Old Testament? Um, things that took place when the high priest died? Uh, it, it deals with manslaughter. Cities of refuge? Any of that ring a bell? Okay. So if you accidentally, let's say you're rolling a stone and it rolls over your neighbor and they die, the, the family can, by law, they could come take your life unless you fled to the city of refuge. And you stayed at the city of refuge until the high priest dies. Okay, so this was really important that a high priest remained in office until they die. And so a lot of people would have resented the fact that now there's Caiaphas. So all of this is kind of set in the background. And so they bring Jesus, interestingly, they don't bring him straight to Caiaphas, although it says they're bringing him to Caiaphas. They first bring Jesus to Annas to hear what he would say about this. Caiaphas is the son-in-law. But uh, this is not really a trial. Okay, this is not really a trial. This is an interrogation uh, since Annas is not the high priest. It's more like a police interrogation. Annas represents for us a thuggish religious system of political power, which probably is trying to protect itself against the reign of God. And it was Annas who uh, it was that owned the bazaars in the temple that Jesus threw the money tables over and pushed the uh, money changers out. Annas, it was known as the bazaar of Annas. So he's got a vested interest. He's got a real problem with Jesus. He doesn't like that Jesus is disrupting his means of gain. And what I think is more interesting is that Annas cares more about making money than he does about the real religious life of Israel. He cares more about his political power. And so when Jesus comes in, who really cares about people and doesn't care about the money, he's going to find he has a problem. And so the two of them come together and they, they butt heads. This isn't really a trial. This is like a police interrogation. He's asking questions. Um... And so the synoptics, they don't record this particular trial. They record Caiaphas's trial. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, John is familiar with these, and he's the only one that speaks of Annas. It's interesting because if you go back through this uh, denial of Peter, verse 13, Simon Peter, another disciple uh, who followed Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had no uh, had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back and he spoke to the servant to let Peter in. And then it talks about uh, uh, the the other this other disciple. And here's here's what's interesting to me is that John here is the only one that speaks about the trial with Annas. And John is the only one who records that conversation. And he seems to be talking about himself when he says that he has access to this. He's always talking about, and, and this happens a lot in Scripture, where a writer will talk about themselves, but they're shy about it. So they say, 
the, dis, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loves. On four different occasions, he says something like that, or three different occasions. On four occasions, he talks about himself as another disciple. So I think seven times John refers to himself, and it can only be John, but he refers to himself with some distance. Anybody else, anybody else in the New Testament do that that you can think of? Paul does, right? I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. He talks about himself in distance. I think Mark talks about a, a young man who ran away from the grave. So he writes his gospel. So this is a, a rhetorical technique in Scripture to say it's me but not say it's me, right? So John is referring to himself here as the one who get, goes out and gets Peter and brings him in. And the importance of that is this. John is there to record the details of the conversation. He tells us what's taken place. I don't know that he went to be in the trial with Caiaphas that would take place in a more official manner. But here we have this pre-interrogation. And what this suggests to me is that they already have their mind made up that Jesus is guilty. They're trying to find a way to prove it. Okay, so that's the thing that's taken place. Synoptics have recorded Jesus' trial. So I thought I might uh, draw out a simple timeline for us here, if we can. Here's the timeline here. And the first thing we see over here after Jesus is arrested, we have a conversation with Annas. Okay. And then, um, let's get rid of that. Then we have Caiaphas. Let's make Caiaphas blue. Okay, Caiaphas. So it goes from Annas to Caiaphas, which we'll see in just a moment. And then we have from Caiaphas, they need official Roman um, approval to crucify. So they take Jesus to Pilate. Pilate doesn't want to have anything to do with this situation, so he sends him to Herod. Okay, Herod says, I don't find anything wrong with him, so he sends him back to Pilate. Okay, And Pilate, of course, finally asks the crowd. And the crowd says to crucify. Nobody really wants to have anything to do with with Jesus here. But this is the chronology that takes place uh, within the Gospels. Is Annas, we need to get his opinion. He's the one with the most influence religiously. This isn't going to happen without Annas saying there's something wrong. Okay. Okay. And then Caiaphas, it's not going to happen unless Caiaphas, as the leader of the Sanhedrin, says we want to prosecute. Okay. But even if they decide that he's guilty, they can't kill him because they don't have the right to capital punishment under the Romans. They have to take him to Pilate. And Pilate is not going to be convinced by some small Jewish squabble, even if it's religious, even if it's a breaking of their law, because he's a pagan. What does he care whether Jesus is blasphemed or not? So they need to convince him. They need to convince Pilate that he's doing something else. And so what do they try to convince him of? Insurrection, that Jesus is trying to be king in place of Caesar. And if you don't crucify him, you're no friend of Caesar. And that gets Pilate's attention. Pilate really doesn't want to have anything to do and says, this is Herod's jurisdiction. Let's send him over there. Herod says, I can't see anything wrong with him. He mocks a little bit, dresses him up in a robe, sends him away and says, I don't see anything wrong with this guy. Herod's a political compromiser too. All he cares about is power and, and uh, sensuality. He's not worried about Jesus. As long as Jesus leaves him alone, leaves his throne alone, he's fine with it. So he sends him back to Pilate. Finally, Pilate says, well, I'd rather release this other guy to you, and maybe we'll talk more about that next time, um, Barabbas. But uh, the crowd insists, probably, probably because of the influence of these religious leaders, that he needs to be crucified. Okay, so they, they take him to Annas. Let's work through that a little bit. The question, the question that was asked. Look with me here, verses um, 19 and following. The high priest questioned Jesus. The high priest here is not Caiaphas. It's talking about Annas. He questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. 
So what do you think he's trying to do here? Any, any idea? What's that? Set him up, trying to get him to incriminate himself. He wants to know, why would he want to know about Jesus' disciples? He can get them too. Maybe he wants to see how big of a following Jesus has. Because if Jesus has a big following, then he's going to sell this thing a lot better to Pilate, that there's insurrection. So we've got these questions coming. What about your teaching? What about this? Do you think uh, for a minute, I know I'm leading in this question, do you think that Annas is any way interested in what Jesus is really all about? Do you think? What do you think? I mean, you can have a different opinion, but it certainly would seem that he doesn't care to get to the bottom of the truth. For one thing, it's not really, uh, if we take Myamides' Maya um, understanding of Jewish courts during this day, that it's not really the proper approach to ask the person on trial to give evidence against themselves. This isn't a trial, not yet. Uh, but it's kind of strange that they wouldn't bring in the witness and interrogate them first. First, the people in favor of the the witness to say they're innocent, and then the people who have the accusation against them to see if they're guilty, but not to ask the person. And so he's asking questions in order to get information to set things up for the next trial that's about to happen, in which they do bring in witnesses, Witnesses who are slanted towards the court, witnesses who are willing to lie, and even even if they don't tell a straight out lie, they budge the truth in such a way that it makes Jesus look like he's going to tear down the temple complex, that he's, he's set up to have his followers throw down the temple. And you remember when he talks about destroy this temple in three days, I raise it up again, he's talking about his own body. But they wanted to interpret it in their way. They put their, we do it nowadays, don't we? Put spin on it. That's exactly what they did. They put their spin on it because they weren't interested in the truth. They're interested in getting rid of an inconvenience. And could we be honest today? Jesus is an inconvenience to living for self. Are you with me? That's that ought to come through loud and clear through the Gospels. He is an inconvenience to living for self. So he asked the question, what is it that, uh, tell me about your teaching and your disciples. If you're interested later, uh, I can give you some uh, of those references that relate to John and uh, him being the other disciple. But John, uh, we know, is associated somehow with the house uh, there. And I don't know if he sold fish to him or if somehow his mom has some place in high society or what, but somehow they're connected with the high priest, and so he gets access. But this whole scene represents a prejudiced approach to Jesus. And I I would uh, suggest to you that we acknowledge today that it's hard to be neutral regarding Jesus, isn't it? Because he's polarizing. I mean, you don't, Jesus doesn't come into the room except that people start to choose sides. They do, and they still do. Uh, and people who want to say, well, he's a good moral teacher, that's a cop-out. It's a cop-out. It's a major cop-out to say, well, I like Jesus, except that I don't like his demands, and I don't like his teaching, and I don't like his morality. You can't do that. At least somebody who says they don't like Jesus, they're honest. Bertrand Russell did that. I don't like their Jesus. And at least he was honest because he really understood what was at stake. Let's not play games with Jesus. Sometimes the worst about that is religious people who patronize him, call him Lord, but don't really live for him. Call him Lord, but push him to the margins and live godless lives most of the time. Never calling upon him, never asking his opinion, never searching out the scriptures, treating him as an addition or kind of an accessory to the American dream rather than what life is really all about. It's knowing him. What's that? Yeah, a checklist. Like if I can do this particular thing, uh, then all things will be okay rather than submitting to a person who that's dangerous to your selfhood. You know what I mean? In a good way. You can't remain fully yourself when you're surrendered to Jesus. You start to become more like him. 
And he causes us to live a life that is self-denying. That's another time. So Jesus is polarizing, but we can be we can be fair with him. We can let his words speak for themselves. The meaning of John, the the Gospel of John, is that the religious leaders here have made up their minds about Jesus, and he was on trial throughout the course of his ministry. This isn't it. this is the culmination of the trial that's taken place throughout the course of his ministry. If you were to look through the Gospel of John, uh, you'll find that in chapter 1, the religious leaders are starting to inquire about him. Chapter 1, okay? And what chapter is before chapter 1? There isn't one, right? That's the very beginning of the book. They're inquiring about him. In chapter 2, they sought proof from him. Who are you? We want proof. Chapter 5, they begin to persecute him. It uses that exact word. They begin to persecute him. Chapter 6, they begin to grumble about him. Chapter 7, they're looking for a way to kill him. Chapter 11, they look for a time to arrest him. Chapter 19, they call for his crucifixion. The whole time in the Gospel of John, Jesus is on trial. And John makes that plain because what he wants us to do is he wants us to come and look at the evidence for ourselves and see that Jesus is worthy of our belief. That's what he wants us to do. But they already had their verdict. They're just looking for a way to sell it to the Romans. So these interviews, they're just attempts to dig up enough dirt uh, to put an end to them. Uh, they won't be able to do it on the basis of religious statements. They have to convince Pilate he's a threat to Caesar. And, and they try to do that in uh, chapter 19, verse 12. Um, ironically, they're right. Jesus is a threat to Caesar but not like they think. And he's a threat to them. Have you thought through this, that when Jesus really fulfills what he came to do, the high priesthood becomes obsolete. So he is a threat to them, and maybe they perceive it, but I don't think so. I think they see him as a threat in a different way. Uh, Maybe bringing down the wrath of the Romans, if we're just to think the very best of these guys, that they're concerned that, a revolutionary figure like this is going to stir things up. The Romans are going to come in and destroy. Ironically, it's not Jesus. It's another group of people that caused that to happen later on. Um, but, but he is a threat to the system that they know. Every king that has felt threatened by Jesus misunderstood what his intentions are. He's not going to take the kingdom by force, but by conversion. Um, Annas' attempt to find fault with Jesus was unfruitful. And so it tells us that uh, he ends up sending him away uh, to Caiaphas, to the Supreme Court, because without that, there can be no official recommendation to Pilate to crucify him. So the question about his followers and the extent of activities would be the basis of those charges of sedition, uh, which tried to move Pilate to action. Um, Jesus must be made to appear to be a revolutionary uh, and a threat to Pilate's administration and to Caesar himself. So Caiaphas' statement about the one man who must suffer, if you go back to chapter 11, verse 47 through 53, uh, it tells that in a little more detail, that one man must die for the whole nation. And it's kind of, it's a prophetic statement, but that doesn't alleviate them from responsibility. So here he distinguishes him by referring back to this prophecy, uh, John does. He recalls those words that may be meant to indicate that Jesus might expect little from such a judge. So there's no, this is no idealist, Annas or Caiaphas, uh, that see justice is done, but a cynical politician who already spoke in favor of, of Jesus's death. I wanted to show you, I think here's what happens in this gospel. So we have um, against the truth. I think you can see this taking place. 
Okay, so you have you have prejudice against the truth is the first thing. Prejudice. Sorry, this thing is shaky. Prejudice against the truth, and so they're already slanted against Jesus a little bit. That they they think he's not the one. They think he's terrible for Israel. Think they're gonna lead. He's gonna lead them into. Uh, some kind of revolution, and they're going to get uh, crushed by the Romans. Then the next thing they try to do is suppress. They suppress the truth or try to suppress the truth. And then they persecute the truth. And then the last thing, because persecution isn't enough, crucify the truth. Okay, so they're fighting against the truth, and this is the stages that this takes in the Gospel of John. Prejudice against him, they don't like Jesus, uh, and everything that he does, they skew in a negative light, and then they try to suppress that, like keep him quiet, but they see that they can't keep quiet. Uh, what Jesus is doing, then they persecute, try to persecute the truth, and ultimately they want to exterminate him. But Jesus responds to being um, to being persecuted or brought in trial here in a way that dignif- brings dignity and boldness as well as respect for the truth. Look at what uh, happens here when he's asked these questions. He says in verse 20, uh, when he's asked about his disciples and his teaching, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Let me pause and say something here. John uses the term Jews not in a derogatory way, but he uses it in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's negative because it's referring to people who are in opposition against him. Sometimes it's neutral, and sometimes it's positive. Like when talks about salvation is of the Jews, it's it's not one like people have tried to accuse. <laughs> think of the ridiculousness of this, John of anti-Semitism for using Jews in this way, and he's not anti-Semitic because he himself is Jewish, right? And Jesus is Jewish, and all the disciples are Jewish. So John is not anti-Semitic, nor is the church, or should the church be anti-Semitic. Sometimes the church has been, sadly, but it shouldn't be. And that's not the way that this term is used here. This is used in a way that perhaps uh, is neutral. And here uh, he's talking about how he's done this in front of a vast audience of people who are Jewish. And so there's no reason to think that he's tried to hide his intention He's taught openly. This doesn't mean that Jesus has never gone beyond the public uh, message. There are times when he's expanded upon things with his disciples. But the message is essentially the same. It's just taught in fuller detail in private at times. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? That Jesus is not one way in, in public, but then he's hiding a subversive thing that he only talks about behind closed doors. What he is in public, he is in private. You all agree with that? It's just that maybe because his disciples are more devoted, he can expand on that and talk about it in more detail. But nothing is hidden. And what he's calling Annas to do and those who are within that court to do is to take an honest evaluation of what he's like. And I would suggest to you that Jesus is not afraid of us asking questions and going with the evidence. The evidence is for Jesus. It is. But... There are those that are here that refuse to look at the evidence as it is. So he responds to uh, these things with dignity, and especially as he's struck. It says, uh, after he responds in this particular way, in verse 22, when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. And said, is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. What an irony, isn't it? Who's got a higher position of authority in the room? Jesus or the high priest? Do you think that Jesus was being disrespectful and asking for them to appeal to the truth? 
I don't think so. I think he's saying, listen, I've spoken plainly out in public for everyone to hear and everyone to see. Make a judgment for yourself. Calling witnesses. Perhaps he's calling for this to be a fair trial, even though at the moment he's not on trial. He's asking for them to bring real witnesses. And Jesus responds to this, if I've said something wrong, then testify to what's wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Did Jesus punch back? Go, if you're going to punch me. Remember when I was a little kid that uh, (laughs) my dad was a a good Christian, but when it came to fighting, uh, he grew up in a rough neighborhood, so he liked to fight. So he told me, if somebody punches you, you turn the other cheek, but if they punch you again, you punch them back. I don't think that's really the spirit of Jesus, do you? But here I think the, the point is Jesus didn't retaliate in this situation. He simply called for them to look at what was really true in this situation. They didn't. The final encounter between Jesus and his Jewish opponents is what John's recording here. A high priest here has rejected the true high priest. And from this point on, uh, the rest is going to go through Pilate. Here's the thing that occurs to me in, in this little conversation. I thought all day, how are we going to relate this to practical Christian living? And here's what I think it comes down to, is that we, we do need, we need to believe on Jesus, and we need to base it upon who Jesus is and what he really did. Okay? But even beyond that, I think we need to love, we need to love the truth. And the problem with Annas and Caiaphas and other religious leaders is that they loved their place more than they loved the truth. They loved their position and prestige more than they loved the truth. They loved their own pride more than they loved the truth. They loved their interpretations more than they loved the truth. And this is what led down a course where you have the, should be the most just man in all of Israel making an unjust decision or promoting an unjust decision because they don't love the truth. They love themselves more. And so this is where the challenge comes. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, uh, he's concerned with truth, what really is. Truth isn't like when you hear people say truth is in the eye of the beholder, that's nonsense. Come on. Do you hear what I'm saying? Truth is not in the eye of the beholder. Truth is in the eye of God. How God sees it is true. We have our perceptions, but we don't determine the truth based on our perception. We're observing a facet of the truth, and we have a perspective on it, but there is real truth out there. There are things that are really real as God sees them. And so we have to come to terms with that. that otherwise, we uh, dissolve into this world of he said, she said, my interpretation, your interpretation, I love in the Old Testament when David and Saul are going head-to-head, and it's really Saul going head-to-head against David, that David says this one thing. He says, may the Lord judge between you and me. And that suggests to me, I may be right, you may be right, I may be wrong, you may be wrong, but God sees what really is. He sees the truth. So when it comes to the truth, Jesus comes to present the truth And we all will have to stand and give account based upon the truth as God sees it. Because he sees the whole picture. We see truth in fragments. We see through a glass darkly. We see see parts and pieces. We don't see the whole. He sees all of it. Do you understand what I mean by that? That he sees things as they truly are. We see our perception of it. That doesn't mean we can't attempt to be objective or try to see the truth as he sees it, or that we're just lost to the idea of truth whatsoever. We can see it, but we only can, we can only hold it in part, if that makes sense. And that's one of the reasons that we need to be gracious to one another, because none of us prepare yourself. None of us has the whole truth just yet. Amen? Don't say it too loud. Somebody might hear you. Your spouse might hear you, and then all argument will be over. But uh, Jesus is presenting the truth here in the Gospel of John, uh, and the truth is what really is. Annas and the others have no concern for the truth, only for what benefits them. 
Uh, in chapter 1, verse 14, it says Jesus was full of grace and truth. Chapter 3, verse 21, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. Chapter 8, verse 40, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who's told you the truth. Chapter 8, verse 45, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Chapter 14, verse 6, I am the truth. Chapter 18, verse 23, if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? Chapter 18, verse 37, I came to testify to the truth. And Pilate will ask, what is truth? But Jesus expects that people will believe in him based upon the scriptures that testify to the truth. Chapter 5, verse 39 through 40, based upon his works, which testify to the truth. Chapter 5, verse 36. Chapter 10, verse 38. And the testimony of God and others. Chapter 3, verse 11 and 32. Chapter 8, verse 18. These things testify to the truth. But Annas isn't interested in really looking into those things or asking the questions from witnesses or really searching these things out. All he's interested in is getting enough to hang Jesus out to dry. And there's a lot of people that are like that out there. They're not really interested in who Jesus really is. They're only interested in finding some fault with him to get him off their back. Sometimes we can be like that too, if we're not careful. How often do people come with their preformed opinions about Jesus? I think I, I see three types of people in this story. First, there is the witness who was never called. Annas is there. Jesus is testifying to who he is, and he asked the Annas asked the question, "What do you teach? And what about your disciples?" And if John is there, if only he were called, he's got a perspective on this. And I would suggest to you and I that we have opportunity as witnesses to the truth to be able to testify to who Jesus is, to tell people the truth about who Jesus Now, that doesn't mean they'll believe. We have no guarantee that everyone who hears the gospel is going to believe it. If Jesus was anointed with the Spirit without measure and not everybody believed him, maybe not everybody will believe us. And I'm not telling that to discourage you. Maybe that will take a little bit of the pressure off. That you got, if you do it just right, then they will have to believe. No, you might do it just right and they still might not. And you might not do it completely right and they might believe. You know what I mean? Because God is at work in these things and it's not all up to us. There's a second person here. And that is the person who is, I would call, the prejudiced judge. They've already made up their mind about Jesus without hearing all of the evidence Maybe they even know all of the evidence, but they choose to neglect a portion of the evidence. Like, we've heard that you've raised people from the dead. We've heard that you've done miracles. Uh, we've seen in Scripture things that testify to you, but we're going to ignore all that because that's inconvenient to my personal kingdom. Think of what Annas would have to do if he really accepted Jesus. He's got to pull the plug on all of his bizarre marketplace things that are happening in the temple. He's got to start really acting like a high priest and concerning himself with the religious well-being of Israel. He may have to step down from his position and take a place of lesser prestige in life. Whatever it may be, it's going to cost him in one way or another. And of course, that prejudices him against Jesus. Then you have the slapper. I'm going to call him that, but he's really a man pleaser is what he is. Why do you think that guy slapped Jesus? Pure disgust with Jesus? I think he was trying to win favor with the high priest, don't you? Like slapping him because how dare you talk to my high priest like that? So he's catering or uh, cowing perhaps to the man in power. And there are people like that. They don't reject Jesus because they really got a problem with him. But he's not popular. He's not the in thing. He doesn't run with the in crowd. And so we can't accept Jesus because that would risk whatever parasitic benefit I get from being attached to the in crowd. You see the problem there? And so he slaps on that basis. And 
of course, puts him out, himself outside of one who believes in Jesus. I think that the religious leaders were faced here with an inconvenient truth. Messiah had come. He had shown up their relative emptiness by ritual, by bringing reality into the mix. He'd taken the authority out of their traditions by giving them freedom. Like They could hold that over people. All the traditions. Remember, that's one of the things that Jesus addressed. You, man, you hold the traditions of men as high as the law of God. Higher, as a matter of fact. You treat it like the law of God. And he gives people freedom. And he'd upset their power and prestige by taking their place. People weren't looking to them anymore to be the arbiters of religious life. They were beginning to look to Jesus, and that bothered them. And so they had to take, they had to take action. Jesus' coming signal, signals the end of the old regime. And they were the figureheads of the old regime. I think uh, for us, the truth has to be of highest importance as followers of Christ. and Not because every truth is pleasant, because it's not. Are you with me? Anybody ever have to face a hard truth about yourself you didn't like? Somebody told it to you, and you're like, oh, I don't like you right now, and I don't like what you've had to say. But there are uh, times like that. It's not pleasant, but it can be liberating. John eight thirty two. Jesus said, the truth will set you free. And so if you and I are in pursuit of the truth, there's going to be times that we have to amend our previous beliefs as we come to understand more of the truth. Because none of us has the perfect grasp on it. And probably if we're living, we're going to be learning. As we learn, hopefully, if we're learning, we'll come to see truth more clearly. And that at times means letting go of things. I don't believe exactly the same things I believed when I was 19. And I'll tell you that I hold to this and don't get nervous. Like, do you not believe in the deity of Christ? I do. I do. I believe in heaven. I believe the essentials more completely than I did when I was 19. And I was pretty zealous then. But there are some things that I've had to change my mind on. Anybody else? Over time, you've had to change your mind a little bit. So we have to come to terms with that. There are times when traditions need to be abandoned in pursuit of the truth. Okay, There are things that sacred cows that need to be slaughtered and things like that. Certain traditions that we have that are not necessarily of God, it's okay to hold on tradition, but it has to be second place to the commands that God gives. I would think of an example of that, but I don't want to alienate us. Do you know what I mean? There are things that are traditions that we could let go of. Okay, here, here's one. When I was growing up uh, in church, my thinking was, this is praise and worship. Praise are the fast songs and worship are the slow songs. Okay, Anybody else think like that? Praise are the fast songs, worship's the slow song. And I came to realize those don't exactly fit the categories. And you've got to always do the fast songs first. And then you move into slow songs. You're clapping your hands and then you're lifting your hands. It's got to be in that order. And then the preaching. Well, that, those are traditions. It doesn't have to happen exactly like that. Are you with me? If you're still being convinced, let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Um, yes, and let us partake of that delicious meat, too, when it happens. That's one of the other things the high priest got to do is he got to eat all the sacrificial meat. So he had no excuse for being grumpy. Um, and then uh, I think that there are times that we need to accept hard truths about ourselves. In fact, this is part of a prerequisite to coming to Jesus is that we have to confess. Confess means, uh, it comes from a word, uh, Homologia, which means same word. And 
So when we confess our sins, what we're doing is coming into agreement with God about his judgments against us. This is why repentance is so important. It's to understand. The world right now is telling us we're all really good people. And that we don't really, and if we follow that line out, we really don't need a Savior. But if we listen to what the gospel says, we're all utterly ruined. There's none righteous, not even one. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags before him. We can't attain goodness on our own. We need God. None is good but God, right? And so that runs directly contrary to secular humanism, which says we're all basically good people, okay? Let's be clear about that because sometimes I still find that belief system trying to seep in. How about you? That doesn't mean we hate people. It means that we of all people, as Christians, can be realists. We can both accept the bad of humanity and yet love humanity because that's been modeled for us. But the first thing that has to happen is we've got to deal with it ourselves. We have to come to agreement with what God says about us. Remember what David said in Psalm 51 after he had committed sin with Bathsheba? He said this, Your judgments concerning me are right. That means... And the justifier says, no, no, I'm not guilty. Your judgment is too harsh. David, who's who's coming into agreement with God about his judgment, says, no, your judgment concerning me is right. I deserve it. Whatever you give, Lord, I deserve it. And you can see that in his walk. When he's leaving Jerusalem, when his son Absalom is coming after him, he says, was it Shammai throws the rocks at him? And he says, maybe the Lord has sent him to do this. Maybe my time is up. And if that's the Lord's will, that's the Lord's will. It's almost like saying your judgment concerning me is right. And so there comes a time when we have to agree with God. We don't always like the ugly truth about ourselves, but we need to hear it. And don't, so don't get mad at the word of God or a beloved Christian friend. Remember how it says, uh, uh, I'm trying to think exactly how it says in the Proverbs. Are better than the kisses of an enemy. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. That's exactly right. The wounds of a friend are better than kisses of the enemy. So God comes and he speaks the truth. We have to love the truth enough to recognize it about ourselves, about what we believe about ourselves. And Annas couldn't do that. In 2 Thessalonians, I'm wrapping things up. i got one minute here. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For the reason God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. We have to, as Christians, love the truth. And that, I think, is where Annas and Caiaphas and the other religious leaders who should have been the top of the game in accepting Jesus, I think it's where they went wrong. They didn't love the truth. They loved themselves more than the truth. Jesus was simply asking for a fair examination His crucifixion was a foregone conclusion, but they needed to get rid of him because he was an inconvenient truth, a threat to their power, their freedom, their oppression of others, their immorality. Herod should have yielded. Caesar should have yielded. The high priest should have yielded to Jesus, but they didn't because they didn't love the truth. I wonder if we treat Jesus any differently because we love ourselves more than the truth. Let's uh, let the Holy Spirit deal with us on that. Amen. Amen. Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your attention tonight. Lord, we thank you for this little story of the encounter with Annas. Annas, who didn't had all the influence religiously in the world, but he really didn't know what to do with you. He loved himself. God, I pray that you would help us to be lovers of the truth, to seek out the truth, even when it means we've got to say we were wrong, 
We've got to change our mind. We've got to let go of some tradition. We've got to admit something about ourselves. I pray that we do that because it's in those concessions as we love the truth that we let you in because you're Lord of truth. You are the truth. And so I'm praying, God, that you help us to be willing to adjust our lives to fit who you are and what you've said about us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here tonight. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.